0: Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, we've made it to May and there is something hopeful about this month with tulips popping up, a reason to celebrate our mothers, signs that the third wave may be peaking and a full month of amazing women from across Canada coming to you on this show. My first guest today brings hope in the form of a new test to detect early ovarian and uterine cancers. Dr. Lucy Gilbert is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at McGill University. She and her team have recently developed an innovative genomic uterine pap test and joins me to share the exciting details ahead of World Ovarian Cancer Day on May 8th. Tanya Hales brings hope to her online global village of over 20,000 women called Black Moms Connection. Tanya's nonprofit provides culturally relevant programs and resources to educate and empower the Black mother and her family. Anne Brody has an exclusive interview today with Ottawa native Kari Skoglund, who also happens to be the executive producer and director of the Disney Plus smash hit The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We definitely want to hear what she said about directing this wonderfully ambitious series with a woman's touch. Meridian Credit Union is taking things back to basics for us this year and building out a masterclass series called Take Control Woman exclusively with what she said. Today, VP of Wealth De DeCruz joins me to share how we're going to help women manage their finances through life's various stages, from the basics to money conversations to building our wealth. I am so excited to be kicking this one off today. Dr. Sadia Sadiqsada is a psychiatrist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and specializes in the care of patients with severe and persistent mental illness and provides care for people who are precariously housed. We talk about the pressure our current mental health crisis is having on the mental health professionals and how the pandemic is impacting those with mental illnesses. Finally, my dry January turned into dry February, dry March, and now April, and I noticed a lot of women are either dropping alcohol altogether or severely limiting its use. And Dowsett-Johnston, the best-selling author of Drink, the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, joins me to discuss the reasons why women are giving up drinking and embracing alcohol-free lives. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 1059 The Region. Ovarian and uterine cancer account for the fourth cause of cancer deaths in Canadian women. Detecting these cancers early to reduce needless suffering and deaths is crucial. Chosen as one of the top 25 women of influence in Canada for 2021, Dr. Lucy Gilbert is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Department of Oncology at McGill University. She and her team have recently developed an innovative genomic uterine pap test called DoveE gene to detect these cancers before they cause symptoms and joins me today to share details. Welcome to the show, Lucy.
1: Thank you, Candace, for having me.
0: So this is, this is really huge and so important. So I want to make sure we get the word out about this. So first off, um,
1: tell me about uh, this test. Thank you, Candice, for saying it's huge, because it is huge indeed. And the reason I say it's huge is because for 30 years, the death rates for ovarian cancer has not changed. Now, imagine the progress we've made in 30 years almost in everything else, but not to change the death rate after investing so much of money on chemotherapy, immunotherapy, et cetera. That's because if you do not detect a cancer in time before it leaves the, the primary organ it started, anything you throw at it really contains the disease for a little time, but women finally succumb to it. So early detection is the key. And I'm so, so pleased that after working on it for so long, we have got a genomic uterine pap test that would detect these cancers while they are microscopic.
0: And that's the key because this the uterine cancer, ovarian cancer is often called the silent killer, correct? That's right. That's right. right. We're getting it too late, obviously. So this test, um, where can women access this test
1: then? Okay. So with every test before it's uh, in clinical practice before uh, women can walk into their doctor's office and have it. That is our aim. We want this test available in every gynecologist's office. We have to do a clinical trial. And the clinical trial will be launched on World Ovarian Cancer Day on the 8th of uh, May. And we, we'd like it, we would like to enroll three, about 3,600 women or so in it to make sure that it works, to have all the, perf- the performance, to submit the data to Health Canada and FDA and so on and so forth. So, uh, and after that, we hope in three to four years to have this test made available to every woman who needs it. So, if women, if
0: somebody's listening to this and they think they would like to volunteer, is there a way they can do that?
1: Absolutely. So we will. Uh, the test is available in s- several satellite clinics in Montreal and Greater Montreal. So we start at the Queen Elizabeth Centre. It's a, it's a community hospital that we chose uh, because we want it to be in a non-threatening environment, not in a tertiary care center. So it's going to start there. we want to make it as easy for women as possible to access it. The age group eligible is between 45 and 70. Please don't wait for symptoms because by the time you get symptoms in ovarian cancer, it is late. So we'd like all women between the age of 45 and 70, uh, at the end of this, I'll give you a number that they can call, Uh, we have our website. We'll go on putting these numbers out, they call, We have a short eligibility criteria questionnaire, and then we want women to make, and we will try and accommodate women according to their convenience. So let's talk a little bit
0: about the symptoms then, and maybe the risk factors. Is this something that uh, you can get uh, if your mother had it, you might get it?
1: Yes, so you're uh, touching upon a very, very important point. Uh, the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is actually low. It's about 1 in 65 women get it. Now, if you have a first degree relative who got this cancer, your risk almost doubles. Now, having said that, less than 10% of ovarian cancers occur in somebody who has a family history. So just because you don't have a family history, remember that 90% of these cancers occur in people without a family history. So to come back to your point, if you have a mother, sister, uh, aunt who have this, please be alert and you may be at higher risk than the general population. But even if without of 90% occurs randomly. So please, please take note. Don't say, oh, it doesn't, ovarian cancer is not in my family, so it won't happen. It's the, f- remember that these two cancers account for the fourth highest cause of death in Canadian women uh, due to cancer. So it is serious, though it's relatively uncommon, it kills. That's why it's so dangerous. There are some common cancers, they're common, but they don't kill.
0: Are there things that increase risk factor? Like, you know, we we know now that, you know, for example, we talk a lot about how alcohol can increase risk of breast cancer. Are there things that increase risk factor for these cancers in women?
1: You're again asking such very important questions. The problem with the risk factors for ovarian cancer, they're not risks that you can modify because it's slightly higher socioeconomic state. You don't want to go into a lower socioeconomic state. It tends to be uh, not having children, having low number of children, having children later in life, not breastfeeding or... So what I mean is factors that you, and living longer, and you don't want to change these risk factors. So really the key is early detection, early detection, early detection.
0: Okay. We did, we have not got to some symptoms and I would just like, so people are aware, uh, you know, until this becomes an everyday uh, test they
1: could easily get, let's identify some of the symptoms for people. Very important. So this the reason it's called the silent killer, as you said, is because the symptoms are so vague. Women think that pain uh, uh, is a serious symptom. Now, very often pain is associated with some non-serious conditions. And in cancer, pain is a very late feature. That's why cancer is so dangerous. The symptoms tend to be bloating. Uh, um, discomfort rather than pain, feeling that your mid middle part of you is getting a bit uh, bigger, early satiety, vague gastrointestinal symptoms like heartburn, uh, feeling full very early. But these are the symptoms, urinary frequency. But you can see that these are not symptoms that make women want to rush to the doctor. So what I would say is if you've had been bloating all your life, then you don't rush to the doctor. But if it's a new symptom, no matter how vague and unimpressive it is, new symptoms after the age of uh, 45, 50, especially after the menopause, please, please, please do know that they could be a symptom of something dangerous. Seek help, please.
0: So this is, I mean, we've emphasized this a lot and and I I want to take a minute to recognize how, how important it is that you and your team have come up with this test. So can you tell me how
1: long you've been working on this? So, I started working on early detection of ovarian cancer in 2008. And we thought, oh, just as, you know, we know women are just dismissed when they come up with these symptoms, maybe by offering easy access to uh, endovaginal ultrasound scan, the blood uh, test CA125 easily to women with these symptoms, we can detect it earlier. So we set up a series of eight Uh, satellite clinics. And to our horror, we found that we were picking it up earlier than just leave ignoring women, but it was still stage three. We did improve the prognosis by finding it in, in a more operable state, but stage three, no, no, no. So that's why from 2013, we've been working on a very highly sensitive genomic pap test to pick up the cancer when it's tiny and microscopic. Well, you're amazing. You're
0: saving lives. I thank you. Uh, So if people want to connect with you, if they want to find out more, please share that now with us.
1: Okay. So a telephone number to call to get access to this is one 866 716 three, two, six, seven, and they can go on on and, uh, what shall I say? Uh, Google the, the Dove Project or in French, Le Projet Dove, D-O-V-E. Wonderful. And we
0: will link to that in when we promote on social as well. Thank you so much for joining me today,
1: Dr. Gilbert. Uh, you're incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much, Candice, for giving me time to speak about this. Bye-bye.
2: Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
0: Tanya Hales is an award-winning creative storyteller using various mediums to evoke emotions, create change, build movements, and color in white spaces. She is the founder of Black Moms Connection, an online global village of 20,000, and nonprofit providing culturally relevant programs and resources to educate and empower the Black mother and her family. The work of diversifying motherhood was the reason behind launching the anti-Black racism consulting business Color in White Spaces, changing the conversation of diversity and inclusion and making it real and relatable. She joins me today to share the why behind Black Moms Connection. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start with the big one then, the difference with the Black parenting experience, because we tend to lump in ourselves and say we're all in the same boat, and we're just not. So let's talk about that.
3: Yeah. So similarly to when we talk about COVID and was like, oh, we're all in the same boat. We're not. We're all in the same water. We're in vastly different boats. And so there's things, yes, that are universal to motherhood. What are you going to pack for these lunches? How much too much? How much screen time is too much screen time, right? Like those things, every parent, every mother goes through. But there are some extras that we as Black women have to consider, have to think about, right? When, when we're pregnant, it's assumes that we're not married right and we're treated like you know we're welfare moms who don't know who the father of our children are like that is just a stereotype even when I'm talking to a lot of different sponsors and media they assume that Black Moms Connection is just a group of single mothers I'm like 70% of my members are married right so it's really those kind of things and then you know our children like children as young as five are being called the n-word on school playgrounds so we have to deal with uh talking to our children about racism as early as four and five, right? Those conversations are not happening in other households. So there is vast differences in how we have to Train our children and not just get to parent. And there's a vastly big difference on how you have to act when you're in, um, you know, police presence. How you, you know, how you have to act when you're in an all-white space, right? When you go to an all-white school, we have to train our children, and it's really difficult because I don't want to take away the innocence of, you know, my son is eight, but also I have to slowly but surely start telling him things like that. So that is probably the biggest difference, you know. we talk about parenthood from a black and white perspective
0: absolutely I, I i couldn't agree with you more on that one i mean i that was one of those most those aha moments for me was realizing that the conversations i had with my children about their experience with police officers was completely different from what a black woman would be having with her children and once you start to get that you start to really i guess get it and that's the whole point right And
3: so people are just like, oh, you know, how do we have this conversation? I'm like, it's not about like, well, 400 years ago, slaves were like, no, you don't have to go back that far. Right? You can, first of all, just kids are naturally curious. They hear the conversations you're talking about. They see what you're watching on TV. You can have a conversation or see if they have any questions, but you have to, you as the parent have to start with your own learning first. Um, You can't teach your children if you don't know what you're talking about.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about the importance of diversifying the motherhood space then.
3: Yeah. So for me, you know, I started BMC because I was in other mom groups, like most Gen X and millennial moms. The first thing we do when we have a baby or we're pregnant, we join other mom groups. That's just what we do. And they're not very diverse spaces. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to ask the culturally relevant questions and get culturally relevant answers. And, you know, we have a lot of members who, when they do bring up race in their, um, in other mom groups, you know, they're gaslit. They're like, oh, why does this matter? Or they're kicked out. Like it can get really, you know, people get defensive as soon as you bring up a race it's like oh and i'm like i'm not going to accuse you of being a racist i'm black <laughs> right i just want to know where i can get black hair care products for for my son or for me it was black sunscreen i was like do they make sunscreen for black skin it turns out that they do right because there is a difference between how zinc oxide rubs into my skin as as it does to yours so you know it was really important and then when we look at instagram and mommy bloggers and mom conferences it's not women like me that's on these stages right it's not women like me getting these huge partnership deals with procter and gamble or whomever right it's always even if you go to google images and put in the word mom you have to scroll for a minute before you see a woman that looks like me right and this is in a very diverse country like canada where my mom's not white Right. And not every single woman out there who is a mother is white. So it is really important because, as I said, like there are some differences and we need to celebrate that.
0: We absolutely do. And Tanya, I really want to have you back again because we don't have enough time today, honestly, to get to really, really go deep on this. Um, And I just I love this conversation. I think we should be having it more just this open conversations and learning. So I want people to find you, though, today. Where can they find you?
3: Uh, you can find me on all of the socials. I'm, I'm very social heavy. Uh, so our website, blackmomsconnection.com. And we have an Instagram for that account. You can find me personally because I do a whole bunch of things, tanyahales.com. Also on Instagram, also on Twitter. And then Color and White Spaces, you know, del- deep, delves deeper into this conversation as well.
0: All right, amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. If you're looking for what's new in entertainment this week, you can find our regular Saturday Night at the Movies over on whatshesaidtalk.com. But right now, we're going to share Ann Brody's exclusive interview with Ottawa native Kari Scoglin, the director of Disney Plus's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier.
4: So, Kari, congratulations. You have such a huge body of work uh, in both American and Canadian projects. And here you are entering this completely international arena with uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. <laughs> What's it like? I mean, it's oh, not as though you have not under- earned.
2: Well, thank you for that. Um, yes, I do feel like I've been working and striving hard to, to uh, you know, bust through the ceilings that I had to bust through to get uh, uh, to get to where I'm sitting now. But I'm super thankful for all of the different projects that I've been able to do because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, everything goes into your, you know, box of tricks and your, your skill set. And so I've been really fortunate to do a, a really extremely varied body of work. Uh, which I found came together beautifully on this project, which had was obviously very demanding um, for all kinds of reasons. But um, I think I brought also some of the things that that were a bit new and fresh to them because they also, you know they also have sort of told a similar story time and again. and we were able to, through combination of the very fact that our story was so different, for the MCU of it because of the, you know, a black man contemplating picking up the shield, opened the doors to so many different ideas and thoughts. And, and um, so that in and of itself was going to to sort of change the thing. But then I hope I brought something to the party, which was not just the female lens, um, but also uh, perhaps a lens just of diversity that, that they hadn't had before. So um, yeah, it's been great.
4: Honestly, there is so much complexity, so much history and tradition, and this freshness that you speak about in terms of the um, the movements that it covers, the left versus the right, uh, Black Lives Matter. And, and, you know, given all the details of the Marvel Universe, I, I'm pretty sure you must have had a big wall graph at home to keep track. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you can't keep it all in your head. You just can't. And so we had... Yeah. Um, Uh, Our executive, um, uh, Zoe Naglehood, who is an extraordinary woman, young woman, um, she had it all in her head. She was like my computer chip. And I kept, so she would be able to, um, you know, she had all of, because you can't possibly absorb, unless you've lived it forever, um, you can't absorb all the minutiae of, of the worlds that, that, you know, and also to find the Easter eggs um, and she would, you know, we look for these opportunities, Easter egg opportunities, and she'd go, oh, there's a, and she would come up with some little thing that we, you know, could find to, to, you know, put in. So, uh, so yes, I had not only graphs, I had papers and I had, and at the end of the day, you know what? It's kind of organic.
4: I also want to speak about the political angles that we find in the film a bit more. Um, the term supremacism is used, not any specific supremacism, but that is the the tone and metier of the world these days, uh, on, yes. on in different areas. And I think it was a breathtaking how timely it is.
2: It um, is. We we were struck. Uh, we you know obviously we couldn't plan that, but by the def by by the conversation we were having initially, which uh, around a black man picking up the shield by definition, we were going to be really scratching the surface of a very um, relevant topic. What we, uh, which, you know, the Black Lives Matter, this conversation has been going on for decades. So, and and, and still unsolved, you know, it, it hasn't, I don't think we've moved the needle enough, you know. So what I hope for this show is that we have moved, we do move the needle, um, and that we look at tolerance and we understand we really take this conversation to another level through through Sam's hesitancy and and how he's interpreting what this is going to mean for him and for the, for his community. So uh, I think the supremacy words and the the nature of where we were going and the Zemo and how he was sort of re-explaining his position on supremacy. Uh, allowed us to really dig into that a little bit. and then, But we could not have possibly predicted how timely it was gonna be. And so that was just a uh, the universe speaking.
4: Thank you so much.
2: Cheers. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region.
5: She's on my-
0: A recurring theme over the last year here at What She Said has been about women and personal finance. Despite the fact that by 2030, women will control 65% of the wealth in this country, there is a lack of confidence in managing that wealth. Meridian Credit Union wants to help change that, and it's why I'm so excited to be helping build out an eight-part masterclass with them to help women gain financial literacy and tackle common money issues head on. Joining me now to discuss is VP of Wealth at Meridian Credit Union, Dillis DeCruz. Welcome back, Dillis. Thanks Ken this is always fun to be here. I am so excited about this year. I mean, this is what 4 years Meridian has worked with, what she said?
6: Yeah, yeah, we are so pumped uh, and we've had so so much such great success working with you and now this is kind of the next step and I'm really pumped about this masterclass too.
0: Yeah, because it's, I think through our conversations it's sort of come to light that women are really struggle with these money conversations, just some basic money knowledge and we want to remove the shame and uh, you know the discomfort of that, right?
6: Oh yeah, and and you know that's that's our, the whole theme for the last four years, right? It has been about educating women, and and I, you know I'm so passionate about it, and and it's it's really um, you know the base of our whole business model is is really to get out there and educate women, and we know that there's a gap. You know we've talked about all the stats. We know that right now women control two trillion trillion uh, of, of wealth. And so, you know, if there's a gap in knowledge and they're afraid to, to invest and, and advisors aren't approaching them and they have all this money, we've got to do something. So this uh, this whole uh, masterclass is going to kind of pull all the stuff we've talked about, but kind of keep it light, keep it fun and, uh, and use you as a guinea pig because you can ask us all the questions you want to. <laughs> well,
0: I think the best part about this is literally I am Pretty much financially illiterate, or was when I started these conversations with you. And I love the confidence I'm gaining. The more I talk to you, and I, I'm happy. I really do want to share that with my audience because there is some power that comes with learning all of these things. So we have eight classes. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have some really great discussions. We've got a bunch of fun little things planned as well. Uh, but let's talk about what we're going to cover in these eight master classes.
6: Okay, so today's the kickoff. So we're going to talk about the why. But um, what we're going to do is I would say we've broken it down into really two main areas. First is money conversations, how to have money conversations. So uh, we're going to dive into that. But before before I do, because I jumped to the money conversations, we're going to start with the basics, basics. The very first one is going to be, you know, how to budget, how to, you know, what's your cash flow, um, just basic things that we may be afraid to ask and just kind of taking a look at your personal financial situation. So really basic and uh, no question is a dumb question. So, you know, as we're talking through it, I think this is gonna be the safe place. Then we're going to dive into some money conversations, all excited about that, because we know that um, women are not having conversations. So they're they're not having conversations with each other. I really want to encourage women to talk about money with each other. But um, we're going to talk about how to have conversations with your your partner. So how do you have that conversation? How do you get more involved? We're going to actually have a really good segment on um, how to have the conversation with parents. We know that a lot of women are juggling that that sandwich generation, right? You're looking after kids and you're looking after your parents. And so how do you have that intergenerational money conversation and really sit down and help guide your parents and make sure that, you know, the right conversations happening, that they have a will in place, that they have uh, what we call a plan B in place so that there's a booklet that kind of documents all the the things they want. So we're going to talk about money conversations. Then we're going to get into um, kind of talking about money and planning and managing through life stages. And we've picked, a few. And so uh, one of them is going to be uh, preparing for children. What do I have to think about? How do I plan for that? Um, We're going to talk about going through divorce. We've talked about that before, but we're going to go deeper, you know, Uh, I can relate to that topic. (laughs) What do you need to know? How do you need to prepare? You know, that when you're going through the going through divorce, when you go see a lawyer, the very first thing is they're going to ask you for a financial statement and many women go in there and they're overwhelmed because they don't know how to do a financial statement. So we're going to go through that. Um, we're going to talk about building wealth while you're single. So this is really important because, you know, the stat is nine out of 10 of us are going to have to manage money at some point in time because we're going to be by ourselves. And so for whatever reason, it might be by choice. It might be through death of a spouse. It might be through d- be divorced. So how do I build wealth? when I'm single. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to bring it all together where the last segment is going to be just kind of wrap it all up. Now, what, and, and what's the next step? How do you, how do you go from here? Where do you go from here? So um, again, I'm really excited about uh, the topics, what we're going to go through and, and uh, we just want to keep it real, real actually.
0: (laughs) Well, that, and that's what I love about working with you is that we do get to keep it real and, you know, and, and I want to just touch on a couple of things you said there. Because, you know, you talk about this and it's money, but this relates to so many aspects of our life, you know, like building wealth when you're single will cascade into other things like, you know, giving you the confidence to remain single and not feel like you have to be in a relationship. You know, there are all kinds of implications that come with um, the confidence of financial literacy literacy.
6: Right, right. So that's what we want to do. Ultimately, we want to wrap it all up and give women the confidence to know that they can do it. Uh, and they should do it. Whether whether you're partnered or not, you need to get more informed and you need to have the confidence that Um, you know, you can go in there and you can talk to an advisor, you know, you don't have to be intimidated by them. And it's okay to ask questions. So we just want to build up that confidence and that knowledge.
0: And I love that you talked about coming to an advisor, because I really want to wrap up this segment today talking about that. Because Mm -hmm. uh, financial advisors as a career, I am seeing more and more women talking Mm -hmm. about uh, finances than ever. Uh, So tell me about what that looks like for you right now. Because I know I've been in meetings with
6: Meridian, and it's been all women. I love it. Yeah. So, um, you know, there is a ton. And so I think the financial um, advisor uh, part of the industry has uh, been slow to get more women in. So from a banking and financial services perspective, and you see the meetings that we've been in, there's all women, but to actually have advisors, financial advisors, the industry is sitting at about 20 some odd percent, which is really low when women are make up 50% of the population in Canada. So, um, so there's a real focus on, and, and I'm really out here, I mean, I, I had up wealth. Meridian. I, you know, I have some great stats just in terms of the women that we have. Like 62% of my top performers are women. (laughs) So, you know, um, women do really well in this job. And what what is disheartening, but we want to change this, is that a lot of women don't want to come into this industry because they think it's very, you know, macho and you know, arrogance. And you know what? (laughs) It was um, you know, 50% of my leadership team is are women. And we continue. And I'm really excited because the most recent hires, we're really wanting to encourage women to join as financial advisors. We're at about 40% of our recent hirings are women. So um, we do know, though, through some some recent studies that um, even women who, you know, women who are graduating from schools know that there's a career, but don't want it because they don't think they can have work-life balance. They think it's very aggressive. And they think they need to be real math experts. And I'm here to say you don't. (laughs) the most important thing is, you know what, the skill set is a skill set. So you have to have some key competencies, but a successful advisor is one that can relate to the person in front of you. And, you know, you've heard me talk about EQ all the time, but it's really about that. And women are stronger on EQ, right? And so what a great career, you know, that if you, if you can base it on what you're naturally good at, and we teach you the foundations, I just want to encourage women to start thinking about being a financial advisor. Listen,
0: I think you and I have talked about this before. I've talked about how my hairdresser is my therapist, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I want my financial advisor to really be the same. I want to be able to see my financial advisor and and share everything because money is so connected, obviously, uh, yes. with everything we do. And if all the relationships I can think, professional relationships we have, I think our financial advisors
6: probably the most important, one of the most important. Yeah, and can you imagine? And, and it is the case where you don't feel comfortable talking to them. And so, you know, I have a lot of male advisors, but our key, the key way we hire is you have to be able to communicate with people. I don't, I don't want anybody that that doesn't. And so, we train them. What does that mean to to emotionally connect? What does EQ mean? How you know how do you how do you create a safe space? And so, we actually provide them with training with that, and we continually talk about that. So that is our culture. And like you said. We, we as advisors in this business have to create that space so that you as a client can feel safe enough to, to open up. And so, uh, so that's our mission. And so again, it's a great opportunity for women as well to, to consider a different career.
0: Well, I am very excited to get into these next uh, classes with you and start giving women uh, all the confidence they need to go forth and, you know, basically conquer the world. So, uh, <laughs> so in the meantime, until we get to our next uh, interview, yeah. uh, how can people connect with you uh, and connect with an advisor?
6: Yeah. So check out our website, meridiancu.ca. Uh, firstly, we have a ton of great information. I'm actually going to be creating a separate portal where women can go in, but right now it's under a tab called good sense on our website, tons of information to get started. And if you want to talk to an advisor, check out uh, by location or, or by person, uh, you know, check out one of our advisors and book an appointment. So we're always there to help. All right. Amazing. Dallas. thank you so great.
4: much. Thanks. Great.
0: The last 15 months has placed a spotlight on mental health in this country, as 40% of us admit to struggling with issues such as depression and anxiety. Where the conversation has not been enough though is on those who entered this pandemic with mental illness such as schizophrenia and obsessive compulsive disorder. Dr. Sadia Sadiq Sada is a psychiatrist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. She specializes in the care of patients with severe and persistent mental illness and provides care for people who are precariously housed. She joins me today to discuss the impact COVID has had on mental illness. Welcome to the show Sadia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So I think the first thing I will actually want to ask is not so much about those who suffer from mental health illness but about the mental health professionals what is the impact this has had on on you
5: and and your peers yeah well thank you for asking I mean you know I think in healthcare in general we're focused so much on patient care obviously that's why we do the work that we do we're passionate about it Um, But I don't think we spend enough time thinking about the burnout that we experience. And that's across the board, not just for physicians, but all our allied healthcare professionals. And then I'd say, especially in the mental health field, um, you know, I think that, of course, sometimes we feel like, oh, we're not the ones necessarily in the ICUs, right? We're not necessarily the ones, you know, who have to intubate and make those difficult decisions. That being said, we're really bearing the brunt of the exacerbation of mental health symptoms for our patients. And absolutely, I think that definitely has an impact on us. Um, Yeah, it's not a surprise at all. And, you know, it takes that much more effort to try and maintain my own wellness uh, during the pandemic.
0: Right. And when I think about it, that is is, that's a little bit concerning to me because what's happening is we have this backlog of people with mental health demands that are looking for Mm. mental health care professionals who also need professionals to help them unload. Uh, And so it feels like this is all going to be almost like a car crash, a
5: multi car crash uh, coming up in the future. I I wouldn't look at it as that dire. I, I think I would look at it in a more hopeful way. You know, because um, the way that I conceptualize mental health is that it's a spectrum and that while right now a lot of us are languishing, to quote a recent New York Times article about how we're not really thriving, not really surviving, but languishing, a lot of us during this pandemic, Um, You know, not all of us are necessarily going to tip over into a mental illness that necessarily requires a physician's help or that of a professional. I think that absolutely there can be an impact on our mental health and well-being, but there are other ways to manage it. You know, all the things that I tell all my, my patients, my family, my friends about. Including the basics of exercise, a proper sleep, proper diet, staying hydrated, because all those things can be thrown out on the wayside when you're so focused on your work and your job and self sacrifice that comes within healthcare. So, I, I don't know that we all necessarily need professionals and it's going to get to that dire state for sure for some of us. Some of us as healthcare providers have our own mental illnesses that we don't, I don't think we acknowledge enough. Um, but I, I don't look at it as that dire of a situation. I think it's more so. We really need to take a step back and take care of ourselves. And more than anything, I'm looking to our government to do a better job of ensuring that if they take better care of the COVID pandemic, including things like paid sick days, including things, access to better housing, secure housing, et cetera, if you take care of that, then you're also taking care of the healthcare providers who are providing that care. Right, right. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that then. How is, what has the impact
0: been on those who who entered this pandemic dealing with mental health disorders.
5: Yeah. So, I mean, I don't mean to generalize, Um, you know, I think I've seen a variety of different experiences, something that has really, really struck me, especially early in the pandemic, maybe not so much now, but in the first couple of months of the pandemic, Um, as you know, like I treat patients with severe and persistent mental illnesses, most of my patients have psychotic disorders, largely of like schizophrenia or, or bipolar disorder. And a lot of them have already lived lives of isolation and feeling socially isolated from others, not because of the pandemic, but because of their, um, situation, their socioeconomic status, their mental health condition, And so some of them have interestingly told me um, that when the pandemic first hit and it was so hard for everyone and shocking for everyone, everyone had to isolate themselves. They felt less alone knowing that others were going through that experience, too. You know, the the idea was like, I felt really alone. But now that everyone else kind of gets a little bit of, of a flavor of what that's like, I feel less isolated and feel more connected to others. So I thought that was a really striking observation um, that, I guess, is on, one of the more, on the more positive or optimistic side. Not that that's positive or optimistic, but just to feel connected is positive. Um, but I'd say on the, in terms of consequences, um, I think about all of the places that my patients, in, particularly, in particular who are precariously housed or homeless, all the places that they like to frequent are no longer accessible to them. So that includes Tim Hortons and hanging on a Tim Hortons, a subway, hanging on a subway. As in the food chain, um, libraries, you know, um, when all those things shut down, which I understand for the purposes of of, um, of an infectious disease pandemic that we're in, it does impact people who you know don't have many places to hang out in. Um, so I think there's without a doubt a decline in their well-being and, and mental health when you have nowhere to go when when you're homeless or living in a tent or living in a shelter.
0: Yeah. Well, you are quite vocal in pushing for change and pushing the government to to make changes now. Uh, I want people to be able to
5: follow along with you. So where can they do that? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. A lot of doctors are these days because we're feeling emboldened, Um, you know. uh, So on Twitter, you can find me at Sadia underscore Sadiq. So that's S-A-A-D-I-A underscore S-E-D-I-Q. Sadia, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: We did thank not have nearly me. enough time to address this, so I'm going to have you back again soon.: Thank you,
5: Candace. Thank you. Before love
2: Before love came to kill us. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059, the region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
0: On December 26th, I decided to jump into dry January a few days early. Sick of the toll drinking was having on me after almost a year in some form of social isolation, I was looking for a reset, both physically and mentally. 120 days later, without a drink, I'm not in any rush to raise a glass, and in the process, I started to notice something else. Women are dropping drinking en masse, and for a variety of reasons, from crushing the patriarchy to finance to health. Even more surprising is women are talking about it out loud, replacing what was once shameful with pretty loud pride. Anne Dowsett-Johnston is the best-selling author of Drink, the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol, named one of the top 10 books of 2013 by the Washington Post, and joins me today to discuss this tipping point. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you for having me. So this does feel a little different. I mean, at first I thought, is it just frequency illusion that I'm noticing women not drinking, but it feels like a lot of women are just dropping it. Is that what you're finding?
7: Yeah, the data tells us that in fact, as many women are dropping it as are enthusiastically continuing. So we see a real um, black and white situation, but yes, there's a recovery movement happening in North America and it is mostly led by women. Really interesting. Yeah. And it's nice
0: to see the shame being dropped from that. And you talk about that a lot, right? About destigmatizing addiction.
7: Yeah. I think that we have come out of church basements. And we've decided to recover out loud, which um, is something that I'm passionate about. I think every person who has taken this journey has a story. I'm sure you have one. And I am started something called Writing Your Recovery, which is a memoir writing course for um, women of every talent every level of, if you can journal, you can join, um, to tell their story. How did they get sober? How did they get over heartache? How did they get over grief? Whatever re- they're recovering from, and um, possibly to get published. Okay,
0: so let's talk about the alcohol industry then, because they play a big part in this culture that we've created of wine o'clock and mommy needs a drink. So
7: what, what's your view on all of that? When I first started writing about this in the Toronto Star in 2011, people didn't believe it was true. People didn't believe that women were catching up with men and that they were dying of liver disease as they were starting to in the UK. And that was the canary in the coal mine. In fact, the alcohol industry in the mid 1990s realized that all the Johnny Walker drinkers were dying out and decided to pitch at the gender that was underperforming. And that gender was female and we have seen a closing of the gender gap on risky drinking ever since since the mid-1990s and now it's commonplace now you it's hard to find a birthday card for a woman that doesn't make a joke about alcohol
0: yeah it was interesting i was watching a movie the other night with my daughter and uh i i for the life of me i cannot remember the name of it but it was three young women in it and it followed them over the course of a weekend and the amount of alcohol and drugs these women did throughout the movie, I turned to my daughter at one point and said, they would be dead. They would be dead. This is completely irresponsible to show this. How do we push back on that
7: um, narrative? We talk about it. We we began talking about it, or I began talking about it, in a 14-part series in the Toronto Star Back in 2011, then my book came and I'm called a pioneer on this subject. Um, I broke the story. Uh, And then we have seen many, many other women write in quitlet form in newspapers about this fact. And now we see uh, the New York Times reporting on yes, and stage liver disease in women in their 20s in the United States, which is really scary.
0: Now, there is a little bit of hope, I think, in all of this, because I am seeing a movement amongst the Gen Z crowd to not actually even pick up drinking uh, like we did. So are you hearing that as well?
7: It's a story. I'm not sure if you visit um, pre-pandemic, if you visited a Canadian campus, you did not see that bearing out. You did not see the putting down of alcohol uh, or the beer uh, bottle, you saw something very different. You saw young women trying to keep up with with the boys. And so I think that um, the frat boy stereotype switched to females. And I think it's, it's scary. Um, I still think it's a huge rite of passage for teenage girls. And what's really alarming is drunkorexia, which means you don't eat, you drink and you save all your calories for shots. That, that's and disturbing. It, it's a real thing.
0: I never heard of that. That's highly disturbing. Yes. Uh, so you say women are now uh, recovering out loud by telling their stories. Uh, so why do you think uh, women are being so vocal at this point?
7: I think this is a vocal generation of women. There are many, many generations who have Um, had some trouble with the 12 step community and the patriarchy in that language. And I think that there is um, an embracing of, I'm doing something healthy. I'm doing it for myself. I love my serenity sisters or my sobriety sisters, and we will create a culture and it's a movement. Um, Whether it's she recovers, which is run by Don Nichol out of Victoria, BC, is an international movement, or Laura McCown out of Boston, or the group around me. Um, it is a real thing and it's exciting. It is,
0: and I want people to connect with you. So can you share where people can find your book, where they can connect with you and follow along on social?
7: Yes, they can find my book virtually everywhere. They can find me on johnston.com and look for my workshops uh, on that website. And they can find me on Facebook, and Johnston, they can find me on Twitter and also on Instagram.
0: Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today, Anne. Congratulations. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 1059 The Region.
2: Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059TheRegion.com.
4: I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.
1: I'm Andrea Askowitz, and I'm Allison Langer.